0: Well, uh, I was, um, got the word from Patrick, have, you, have y'all not seen through the old country boy stick he's got going, yeah. I'm just an old boy from the hills, and uh, dumb like a fox, and uh, so um, uh, he, he gave me one of my greatest lines uh, that I've used in preaching ever since I was there when he preached for his ordination at the Central Carolina Presbytery, and uh, he said, said, well, he said, I want to be like Harry Reader. He doesn't steal sheep, but he grows grass. And uh, I said, man, that is a good line. That's a good philosophy of ministry, isn't it? Just grow some grass and watch God turn goats into sheep and watch the sheep get hungry and start growing as they feed on it. So my assignment was to talk about leadership uh, in the context, and we talked about how and where. And in just a couple of weeks, I'll have the Indianapolis State Police Academy with me. Uh, sometimes I'll take military units and uh, different ones, and we'll, we'll do what I call uh, learning lessons on leadership on battlefields. So it's battlefield leadership lessons. And one of the places I really enjoy doing that is, uh, let me turn this up. By the way, if you'll put that on hymns. And, you know instead of that train uh that I, and I really like uh how great thou art uh, uh let me cut mine off because i 've got Sean Connery on mine and uh, so um so anyway um so uh um we were talking about how to go about this, and I think this is a day for leadership. You know, um, let me set this in the context of why I think we as Christians uh, can learn from history and learn from moments like battles, and let me just kind of give context to this. Um, number one, uh, Peter and I, tomorrow, along with uh, Dr. Grant, we're going to be talking a lot about how do you learn from uh, from history in general, but leaders in particular in the past and um, without being uh, pressured to cancel out people because of their imperfections. I mean, how do you do that? How do you accomplish that? And why do we do that? How do you look at leaders and leadership events and realizing the imperfections of all of them, but you can, as I say, you can look at the leaders and find their beauty marks, uh, in order to embrace them, and uh, and then the um, and then the the inadequacies or the or the or um, the uh, marks uh, that you don't want to embrace, you set that aside. You filter it. I mean, we do it all the time, don't we? I mean, one of the illustrations. I'll get ahead of myself. Tomorrow is, of course, King David. What a what a great lesson leadership. Well, I mean, he, you know, he had a rather checkered past. He uh, he, was, he had he had some. Um, Great sins, but he was also a great repenter. And uh, he knew the greatness of God's grace. And so there's much that we can learn from leaders like that. And uh, so I'm going to be talking about uh, leadership from the Battle of Gettysburg that I think is pretty important. This is one, honestly, I do a lot for pastors. And then I love to take uh, college uh, groups and military units. And um, like I said, I'm doing the Indianapolis. State Police Academy in a couple of weeks up at Antietam and Gettysburg and lessons from those two battles uh, that I think are pretty significant. So I'm going to try to do that for you. I'm going to try to do it in an economy of time so that we can have some uh, so that we can have some uh, conversation, but let me further set it in context. I don't know whether you've noticed in church history or if you've noticed in history in general or church history in particular, or if you've noticed just from your Bible. Every time God starts to do something, the first thing he does is he raises up a leader. If he's going to take his people out of Egypt, he calls for Moses. Uh, If he's going to establish the fulfillment of his covenant promises, he raises up a King David and the uh, extensive monarchy that's established under him, fulfilling God's covenant promises of uh, the land that he was going to give his covenant people. When you take a look at Jesus and you look at his three years of ministry, the vast majority of his time was spent in developing the 12, the 3, and and the 70. That's what he spent most of his time doing is the development of leaders. That's why I wrote the book, uh, 3D Leadership. Uh, 3D Leadership has a, a lot of lessons about leadership, and it's a call that the church must again become a leadership factory, is what I call it. Three Ds, define, develop, and deploy leaders. But not only define, develop, and deploy leaders in the church, uh, in the church and for the church, but in the church for the world. We ought to be turning out the leaders in the field of media and journalism and performing arts and the academy and... um, and statesmen for elected offices, Uh, we ought to be doing that. And then then we're sending Christians out as salt of the earth and light of the world, and uh, they begin to bring the testimony of God's common grace that restrains sin in society, and then they begin to bring the testimony of redeeming grace that changes sinners uh, in the context of society. And when that happens, then you begin to see everything else happen. I don't think the mission of the church is to transform the culture. That's a consequence. The mission of the church is to transform sinners and then teach them and disciple them and particularly teach them how to lead in whatever responsibility or relationship that God has assigned to them in their providence. So this whole subject of leadership has... um, has captured me almost all of my life uh, just trying to learn those basic principles of leadership and um, the cost that comes with leadership. I always say this, salvation's free, discipleship costs, and leadership costs you a lot more. And uh, that's just the way it works. But but that's what God uses as leaders. You see, Jesus says he develops the leaders. Let me make another point. Not only does God raise up, this is going to be important in our lesson today from the Battle of Gettysburg, now, the second principle from God's word on this is that when God raises up a leader, he raises up a leader who attracts and develops and deploys other leaders. In other words, when he does something, he not only does it through a leader and leadership, but there's always a plurality of leadership. <laughs> one of the reasons I'm a Presbyterian, I believe in that plurality of leadership. Because whenever, whenever you have one. One leader, you not only get their strengths, you get their weaknesses. But if you got a plurality of leaders, now you've got other strengths to cover those weaknesses, for a better effectiveness, a better effective leadership that can be put, that can be put into place. Uh, so when I remember uh, first time I began the, this, the book that I wrote, three D leadership, was born out of an interesting moment. Uh, there was a, a a young man who was. Uh, training uh, pastor, uh, church planters uh, for the PCA underneath the leadership of a guy by the name of Terry Geiger. And his name was Tom Hawks. And Tom um, came to me one time and he said, hey, we've got a church planters conference. And I'd spoken at it a couple of times for various things. He said, I want you to do a talk on leadership and how pastors need to lead and how they can develop other leaders. I said, Tom, I said, I... You know, he said, I said, I don't really have a talk for that. And uh, I said, I'm not sure I'll have the time to develop a talk for that. He said, he said, yeah, I didn't figure you did. I said, well, why are you asking me to do it? And he said, it's really interesting. It was a very encouraging comment he made. He said, you know, Harry, he said, I've watched you. And he said, I think you do that. You lead and you develop leaders. but I think you just do it intuitively. I want you to learn to do it intentionally, so if I make you talk on it, maybe you'll get better at it. And I said, well, that sounds like a good idea. I remember as the date was coming uh, very rapidly for that conference and that uh, where I was supposed to do the talking, I hadn't arrived anywhere. And then I sat down um, uh, that afternoon, I just pulled up my Bible, I went in and got lunch at an early afternoon at my favorite <coughs> Scots-Irish restaurant, McDonald's. And uh, and uh, I want to I want to tell you something. There's there's something holy, sacred, and empowering about a Big Mac, uh, especially with when you get a little extra Big Mac sauce on it. And uh, and I'm sitting there working my way through this thing. What in the world am I going to talk about? And um, and I was and God just led, led me to uh, Hebrews chapter thirteen. And uh, as I arrived there, that verse that is a frightening verse for people like y'all. You see, Presbyterians, we do this thing, ordaining and installing elders and deacons. Y'all remember that? And to do that, you've got to have a charge to the congregation, you've got to have a charge to the, uh, to the leaders, and you've got to have a sermon. Well, that means you've got to have three preachers. Now, anytime you go to a service that three preachers are scheduled to speak, you're either very brave or you just haven't got anything to do that day. And uh, because here's what happens. One guy's got the sermon, and the other two guys have got this thing called a charge, but they actually turned that into a sermon. So you're going to get three sermons is what you're going to get. And you're just kind of hoping they'll look at their watch every once in a while. So uh, so anyway, I... um, I went to that text in Hebrews because this is what it says. Remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, and considering the outcome of their life, imitate their faith. Now, listen to that very carefully because if you're listening to me, you're saying, well, Harry, yeah, that's a great verse. But that verse isn't talking about leadership. That verse is talking about followership. Remember those who led you who spoke the word of God to you, and consider the outcome of their life, imitate their faith. And you're right, that's a follow. In other words, in that installation service, that's the verse that everybody likes to go to to give a charge to the congregation. Remember, it's got three points, Presbyterian, all the way. Uh, Remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their life, and imitate their faith. That's free, Patrick. Uh, There's your three points, and you can just go for it. So, Harry, how did that become the foundational verse for your book? Well, it's a followership verse with three points, but it has three leadership assumptions. To the followers, it's assuming they have leaders who have leadership skills, competencies. Remember those who led you. Well, you can't lead people if you don't have leadership skills. Secondly, secondly, it not only assumes leadership competencies for the followers uh, that the followers benefit from, but secondly, it assumes leadership content. It says who spoke the word of God to you? You can't speak to people the word of God if you don't know the word of God. Remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, and considering the outcome of their life, imitate their faith. Well, a faith that is worth imitating by followers is a faith that is identified by character, godly character. And so, those three points became foundational for me: that leaders have to have godly character, they have to have uh, leadership skills, competencies, and they have to have, and um, they have to have leadership content. Uh, they need to have their all, a person came up to me one time and said, Pastor, i got a question, but don't worry, it's not theological. And I said, well, then it's not a question. Now, all of life is theology. That's why we talk about a Christian world and life for you all the time, that you think biblically, you develop a mind for Christ. When You get to be saved by God's grace. You get a new heart, you get a new record, you get a new life, you get a new home, you get a new family. What you don't get is a new mind you still got stinking thinking, and you need to renew your mind. That's called discipleship. And uh, so, um, so you need that content, and you need those competencies. Now, almost every leadership talk you go to immediately goes to competencies. We're going to teach you leadership skills. I don't. I don't even go to content first. I go to character first. Let me give you a couple of reasons why. In the qualifications for an elder in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, you can count them. There's 17 qualifications. It's really an interesting text. I'd love to maybe preach it for you sometimes on leadership from that text on the qualifications for an elder. There are 17, 15 of those qualifications deal with character. Two deal with confidence. Manage, teach. The other 15 are carried. Now, I have watched this in the ministry my whole life. I know many men who can have unbelievable skills uh, uh, in their leadership skills. I know many men in the ministry who, it's unbelievable their grasp of theology. But everywhere they go, churches suffer suffer or split, and the problem is their character. So, I believe the lead dog in leadership is character. So, I've spent my whole life studying biblical characters of leadership, biblical events of leadership, biblical principles of leadership, and I love to learn from history. In my secret life, I'm a historian. I I love to do it. I'm As my executive pastor says, I am a true historian because historians are basically walking romantics. And uh, so I love to get, uh, I love to take leaders like places like Gettysburg and Antietam and you get them there and you start teaching them something. And it's a whole lot different than the classroom because you get insight while you're on site. I mean, Patrick remembers. (laughs) I got a relative here and I showed him where he stood. I've done that, I can't tell you how many times I've done that. And and I'll walk away to talk with somebody else, and I'll look back, and they'll be sitting there just writing things out that are just coming to them. It's really interesting when we take, Peter and I take people on these Reformation tours. Calvin, we do one on uh, France, Switzerland, and and, uh, Germany, on Luther, Calvin, and Bootser, and and Zwingli. And then we do another one, uh, the Reformation in England and Scotland, and looking at Knox and Latimer and Ridley and uh, um, and, uh, um, and Cranmer and uh, just to try to gain from that and it's really interesting how that affects people and how it works with them and that and th- and want you to remember this is a big deal what I'm going to try to say to you in just the next few minutes you not only have to have a leader that's got character content and conduct or I mean sorry character content and competencies, but they have to surround themselves with leaders. The test of a leader is not the size of their followership. Uh, Great leaders attract and develop and deploy other leaders. And that's what they do, and Tom was right. I shouldn't do it just intuitively, I need to learn to do it intentionally. And um, and so, um, and I think there are some things that are crucial for leadership development. And uh, that is, to teach people, they got to get good models. And there's only one model that's perfect. The rest of them are imperfect, but you can learn from them. Secondly, you've got to get good mentors. And thirdly, you've got to get um, a good band of brothers or a circle of sisters who surround you to hold you accountable in life. So I believe you get your models from history and the Bible. You don't get your models from the present because the last chapter hadn't been written yet. You don't know how they're going to finish. Get your models from the past, and get your get your mentors from the present, unless you know how to channel or something. <laughs> uh, so and then and then get yourself. I got you know uh, Shelton Sanford, Sandy Wilson, and John Wood, and I've been meeting together for 42 years. Uh, holding each other accountable, raising our families together, uh, um, encouraging, praying uh, with one another. That's just so crucial in life that you've got that. But you wouldn't have had a Luther without a Melanchthon, And uh, uh, you wouldn't have had Zwingli without Bullinger. And you wouldn't have had Calvin without Beza, And uh, you wouldn't have had uh, uh, Cranmer without Latimer and Ritten. Uh, you wouldn't have had Knox without Goodman. Uh, they always are there together. And great leaders when they're done. As it says of David, after he had served God's purpose in his own generation, he fell asleep and was laid among his fathers. But he didn't leave a vacuum. Here were three mighty men, and here were thirty great that he had developed. When Paul finished his course, there's Timothy, Titus, Luther, Aquila, Scylla, and uh, and Luke. He didn't leave a vacuum. When when, uh, Moses finished, there's Joshua, Caleb, and the elders of the tribes. So you see that this glorious... Picture of leaders producing other leaders. And I just think one of the things to do is to go to historical events and learn from. Now I was supposed to have a whiteboard here. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. I remember somebody asking me, Harry, what do you need tonight? <laughs> I need a whiteboard. Nice try, Patrick. I can just, I, then I walked out the door, I know what he said. He turned to the, uh, the lady I met there with him. He said, watch, whiteboard my foot. <laughs> Let's see what he does with that one. But I thought it'd be good to kind of put something up here for you and talk about it. Um, Battle of Gettysburg is very interesting. I think most of you, it's called the high water mark of the Confederate effort. It's called the Great Battle for the Victory of the Union to put down the War of Rebellion. It was a key battle. I um, And I think there was much to learn from it. And uh, need any help? See how people cluster around to provide the leadership that he's lacking? <laughs> That's great. Patrick's got a great family, and one of the reasons I know you got a, a great, not only a great founding pastor in John, but a great guy with Patrick is both of them did that number one requirement of a leader. Uh, where I'm from, it's called They Married Up. <laughs> and in, this, in those two guys' cases, they married way up. <laughs> way up. So let me uh, let me do something that hopefully will make a a little bit of sense here uh, in just a few moments here. And uh, let me put that there. Down here is a town called Gettysburg. I'm a great artist, right? And uh, so um, so let me put that up there and get started. The the day was May the 14th, 1863. Uh, Robert E. Lee had just won uh, probably the most, I think the two greatest military feats by Robert E. Lee was the Battle of Chancellorsville. He was outnumbered three to one, divided his army into four different parts, and defeated another army that was three times his size. It was a remarkable battle. It it took place from May the 2nd through May the 5th um, in that spring. Uh, between Fredericksburg and a place called Chancellorsville, and it was a remarkable, remarkable battle. It was a costly battle because it cost him his chief executive officer, which was a guy by the name of Thomas J. Jackson, or Stonewall Jackson. It also, called, it also cost him uh, five other generals and, uh, and then wounded six other generals, and it cost him uh, 17 colonels, and, uh, which is really uh, a remarkable, remarkable in terms of leadership. Lee made a comment about his assessment of his army. He said, said, it is an amazing citizen army. Uh, I believe there's never been one like it in all of history. And then came an interesting statement. If properly led, I think they're almost invincible. That's a big if. If properly led. How do you replace... Stonewall Jackson. and How do you replace him in the context of his teamwork with the Robert E. Lee? Jackson died on May the 10th as he uttered those words, let's cross over the river and rest under the shade of the trees. Uh, Lee wouldn't even come to the funeral. He wouldn't come to the bedside. He was just emotionally couldn't handle it. Uh, he said, he, he said, uh, the, the, the sun has never shone on a more effective executive officer. I only need to give him my objective. And he would create the strategy to achieve it. And uh, it was a remarkable uh, mar- remarkable team that had been put together. Uh, so, but now Jackson's gone. And then Lee made this statement. He is irreplaceable. And that's pretty much the story of Gettysburg. The absence of Jackson on three days, and all three of them, if he's present, and he performs like he has in the past, it probably would have ended up a victory uh, for the Southern forces. But he he was dead, so Lee got on this. Lee actually took a railroad car from Fredericksburg uh, all the way down to Richmond. And he was there for a, uh, a three-day, three-and-a-half-day conference. Most of it took place in what was called the Confederate White House. It's still there today if you want to visit it. And uh, it was upstairs in, uh, where Jefferson Davis liked to have his meetings of his, of his uh, cabinet and his war council. And the big discussion at that time was to have Lee uh, turn over the Army of Northern Virginia to someone else and go out. And uh, lead the Army of the West, which had really only won, at at that time had won no significant, had fought valiantly, but had won no significant values. It was just a string of losses. And everyone looked at the Army and said, these are great fighting men, they just need to be properly led. Lee's argument was that um, by the time he got there, uh, the things that you want him to say would have already been lost, i.e., Vicksburg. And uh, and so um, he said, "The war is going to be won or lost in the East, between the ninety miles from Richmond to uh, Washington. That's where it's going to be won or lost." And um, and he and Davis had a gigantic disagreement, although they were both very civil with each other. And Davis was a great admirer of Lee, but he was—they had great uh, a disagreement, uh, and of course. Jefferson Davis was actually the Secretary of War that built the war machine that they were now fighting uh, he had been the Secretary of War in the previous administration and um, and so and he also had gone to West Point so he he fancied himself quite the general himself and of course being as president uh, the Constitution was very similar in that it affirmed the president as uh, commander-in-chief over all the armies Lee was uh, up until eighteen, up until February of eighteen sixty-five, Lee was never over all the armies. He was just over the Army of Northern Virginia. That was it. And um, and so uh, they're having this discussion. And um, one of the secretary of, uh, of um, one of the secretaries was a man named Regan, spelled like Reagan but pronounced Regan from Texas, and he was arguing vociferously to send. Then he argued that Longstreet, if, we, if Lee won't go, then you send Longstreet out there, and Longstreet had been lobbying in the back, in the back, uh, back rooms for an independent command. Um, there's a, quite a bit of evidence that Longstreet had a rather large-sized ego, and um, he did not handle well compliments going to other generals without this, without more coming to him, and uh, that was documented, particularly in his relationship with a general by the name of McClaws and a general by the name of A.P. Hill. And most of all, he, he never said anything because he knew of Lee's admiration of Jackson. But he felt quite, um, uh, quite some rivalry with Jackson. And uh, now Jackson is unbelievably notorious because on, on May the 2nd, he took 26,000 men on the 17-mile flank march and uh, rolled up the entire right flank of the Union Army at the Battle of Chancellorsville, where he was wounded that night that later turned into pneumonia, and he died a week later. And uh, so Jackson was untouchable. I mean, at that time, in many quarters, Jackson was more famous than even Lee is at that time. Uh, And so, um, uh, but uh, Longstreet's biding his time. And he's lobbying for this independent command to go out uh, to the West. Uh, but Lee doesn't want to give up, as he called him, his old war horse. Uh, he doesn't want to give him up. Uh, he says, I need him, and we need and uh, And Davis says, well, I don't know. And he's kind of vacillating back and forth. The second issue with, Gen- with uh, President Davis was that President Davis felt the necessity to uh, defend every square inch of the Confederate nation um, at the coastline back. And um, well, with the insufficient manpower and all of that, that was pretty much impossible to do that. Uh, and Lee kept trying to explain to him that you got to take things into consideration. Number one, the Union Army is not going to be making any coastal advances in July and August. <laughs> every known fever in the world will get you on the coast of South Carolina, Georgia, and North Carolina. And so they'll make little incursions, but you don't have to worry about them. Just set up key points where you can move troops to meet them on their incursion. Otherwise, get all the men you can to meet. And if you want to defend Richmond, we don't need to build a perimeter around it. What we need to do is cut me loose and let me go north. And where I go... I can promise you Lincoln will have uh, McClellan to go uh, there. Of course, McClellan, uh, I'm sorry, will have Hooker, Joe Hooker, to go there. Of course, uh, Hooker will be replaced, and uh, General Meade, uh, a Pennsylvanian, will end up being the uh, general over the Army of the Potomac. But he says, uh, he of course, he quotes the Napoleon maxim, he who tries to defend everything will defend nothing. And uh, he says... He'd let me go and they will follow me. And then he presented his plan. Uh, number one, he had to replace Jackson. And he basically, I think, gave up. And he made mistake number one in leadership. He didn't replace Jackson. I think he could have replaced Jackson, not with another Jackson, but someone very close to him. Uh, ability. But it would require a little outside-the-box thinking. When Jackson got wounded, uh, the Battle of Chancellorsville was not over. When Jackson got wounded, Lee was over here with 14,000 men. Jackson had 20-something thousand men. Jackson's gone. A.P. Hill gets wounded, who was next in seniority. And then A.P. Hill sent word to Lee, I'm putting Jeb Stewart in command. Jeb Stewart took 24,000 men and assaulted the next day the breastworks of the Union Army all around Chancellorsville and drove out 65,000 men with 24,000 men. Uh, Jeb Stewart, of course, is the greatest cavalryman in our history. Uh, I mean, nobody doubts that. Um, and so it takes, it takes a big move to pull a guy away from being the number one cavalryman that, uh, that exists and put him over the infantry. I believe that's what Lee should have done. Stewart was the only man who trusted Lee the way Jackson did, and who had the same or similar gift mix in combat that Jackson did, including uh, unbelievable courage. But Lee didn't do that. Lee looked to seniority. He first looked to Richard Ewell, who had just had a leg amputation and had been and it was healed from it, healing from it, and had just gotten married and had just become a Christian, by the way, just been baptized. Uh, and so, um, and they looked at A.P. Hill, who was a five foot five, five foot six Bantam rooster, with an ego that belonged in the body of a seven foot five giant. And uh, so, what is he going to do yeah. with these two men? And he couldn't. He didn't feel he could elevate one upon the other. Then he made mistake number two. Mistake number two is he restructured his army. Now, why am I saying that's why am I saying that's mistake number two? Because Jackson, uh, because Lee had a particular strategy that he was a master, and every battle was fought with this strategy. Every single battle was fought with this, including Gettysburg. I'm going to disabuse you of what you think about Gettysburg in just a minute. But even the Battle of Gettysburg, and that's, he learned it from Winfield Scott in three battles in Mexico, where Scott said, if any one man deserves the credit for our victory in the Mexican War, it is Robert E. Lee. Uh, And it's interesting, he then said, and if, and if, the nation ever has need of him in war they will find he's the greatest captain we have ever produced it's really interesting uh, scott's uh, general winfield scott's assessment and um, and what he watched he's watched scott who was outnumbered in every battle in the mexican war and scott and lee was his reconnaissance executive officer lee would take uh, a sizable force on either a left flight move or a right flight move, while Winfield Scott would take the smaller force and demonstrate against the enemy to freeze him into place. So Scott would be the anvil, and Lee would be the hammer. And left and right, he did it every single time. Now, you got to remember, killing technology had increased dramatically. It wasn't the front-end loader musket that their forefathers fought with in the War of 1812. Uh, now you had a rifle musket. Now you had a ball and cap. Uh, now you had, uh, and now you even had seven-shot repeaters. Uh, in other words, what used to take you a, a great soldier could uh, take the seven steps of loading, firing, uh, loading, aiming, and firing took seven steps to do it, and a great soldier, watch the movie, Glory, and you'll see the training, what they were taught to do, the 54th Massachusetts, and they could do that three times in a minute under, under combat, it was just really remarkable, that's what they were able to do, I've got one of those rifles in my, uh, in my, um, in my home, it's called the 1864 Richmond Rifle. I periodically will take it to a session meeting if I think it, I need it. And uh, so, um, so... And so, so, uh, so... And then cannon. So up until, up until the 1850s, you had a front-end loader, and you would fire it, and if the ball was round, which it seldom was, it was usually out of round. It was usually not a Sonny Jurgesson spiral it was more of a Billy Kilmer flying duck is what it was and uh, so it would, it would kind of move like a, so accuracy maybe 50 to 100 yards but now with the cone the what's called the mini ball and now with the rifling now they can hit with accuracy 250 yards so you can start killing people a lot sooner and you can get more opportunity to kill them they got 250 more yards to come if they survive your first shot, and um, then the same thing happened with the cannon. The cannon got rifled and got spherical uh, um, uh, spherical um, uh, loads, and so uh, now instead of 800 yards, maybe a mile with a cannon, now you could go five to seven miles with the Whitworth, and uh, so the killing apparatus. So, front-end assaults, uh, the frontal assaults were only done as a last measure or for some other tactical reason. Uh, You didn't do them. So, what Lee would do is he would feint to the middle, and he would make sure there would be a general there. You know who copied this? You ever heard of uh, the Battle of Kuwait? Schwarzkopf copied this. He took the Marines, he put them in landing craft. He put them right off the coast of Kuwait. Marines, landing craft. Uh, that brings back some memories, doesn't it? And then he took the he took the B fifty two bomber bombers and brought them down uh, almost to the ground. And they carpet bombed coming up the flank. And then right behind them came the tank divisions. And then came the third division. And he just rolled the thing up in four hours and fifty minutes. And he just copied. Uh, he copied. Um, he copied uh, uh, this whole chancellor, chancellor's bill. Lee had fourteen thousand men. He held eighty-five thousand uh, for an entire day with his fourteen thousand. While Jackson got on the flank with twenty-four thousand, and he rolled it up. And uh, I mean, you're seeing. I, I hate to keep skipping wars on you, but uh, you know the same thing. Rommel was a great student of Lee and Jackson. And that's when Patton, when he landed in North Africa, he, the famous words, he said, I read the book. <laughs> he said, I know who you're copying, and I'm going I'm to outflank you is what I'm going to do. And so, um, so that, that's what Lee did. But now, here's how he could do it. He had just the man as an anvil. And that was the man whose thoughts were defense all the time. And that's a guy by the name of Longstreet. Longstreet, Longstreet's greatest moment is at Fredericksburg when Burnside, out of Lincoln's, uh, Lincoln's pressure and his own stupidity, made nine assaults up Murray's Heights. And they just decimated. And Lee kept trying to tell Longstreet, you can't do that every time. Number one, it's a, it's a battle with no... He said, all we're doing is killing their guys. They've got plenty to put in their place. He said, we've got to have a cataclysmic victory. They've got to have a catastrophic defeat. We've got to bag up. That's what we've got to do. And, uh, but Longstreet thought, stand firm. That's what he thought. So he, time and time again, he would put Longstreet right there as the anvil, and Jackson was his hammer to the left or the right flank. Both men, by temperament, training, and passion, were suited for, that, for that, those tactics. Lee had his army in two corps. He had the first corps uh, under Longstreet, and he had the second corps underneath uh, Jackson. Jackson's corps was called a foot cavalry. They covered 30, 35 miles a day. Uh, they, they, They were unbelievable. I mean, Jackson took his men out to the valley campaign and in 60 days fought 14 battles, defeated four armies, all bigger than his, and marched almost 800 miles. In those sixty days, that's and so they were suited. But here's the big deal: each corps had twenty-four to twenty-six thousand. So when you came on the flank, when you came on the flank, you had power to roll it up, and that's what happened to Chancellorsville. Eleventh Corps, Sixth Corps, Fifth Corps, Second Corps, he, and Third Corps. He just rolled them all the way back up. And uh, but now, Lee can't. Decide on who to replace Jackson. So he puts Hill, he he, he promotes Hill to Lieutenant General, he promotes Ewell to Lieutenant General, and of course Longstreet. So now he went to three corps. And the three corps number between 20 and 22,000. Now, to get a knockout blow, you're going to have a coordination between two corps. And if they don't coordinate, then you're not going to have enough power for the flank attack to succeed. Does that make sense, Steve? We're going to get to some lessons on this. <laughs> but, uh, but that's what he decided. I am, obviously, a, I love to study Lee and Jackson and Chamberlain and, um, and Lou Wallace. is another guy I study and some others. But, uh, but I am going to critique Lee tonight. But not the way he's usually critiqued at the Battle of Gettysburg, which I think is historically inaccurate. And I want to try to get that to you because I think there's some good lessons here. Not, I'm not trying to get Lee off the hook at Gettysburg. I'm just putting him on another hook, and uh, and I think and I do so with temerity, uh, but uh, but I think it needs to be it needs to be done to learn this. So in those days, May 14th to May 17th. Um, he restructures his army and then he promotes two men to replace Jackson and he gives each of them a corps now a corps is made up of three to five divisions a division is made up of three to five brigades a brigade is made up of three to five regiments and regiments theoretically are made up of ten companies and um, so that's, that's what he carries up That's not his biggest, that's not the biggest part of his plan. He then says to Davis, you got five of my brigades down in North Carolina, and they're all veterans. I need them back. That's almost 4,000 to 5,000 men. I, I need them. I need those veteran brigades. Pull them out of these coastal defenses. You don't need them in July to guard mosquitoes. You don't need that. Bring them up and give, them, give me my five brigades back. And Lee never got them. Davis kept prompt. Lee is actually asking for them all the way up to the day before the Battle of Gettysburg. But Davis never sends them because he couldn't face down the governors. And so he never sends them. Secondly, he says, we've got another famous general. Lee didn't think that much of him, but he was famous. His name was B.T. Beauregard. He said, bring uh, Beauregard, who fancied himself the next Napoleon, bring him up here, uh, put uniforms on old men, on kids, and empty the hospitals and start an army and blast it in the headlines. Beauregard has a new army from Richmond, and he's on his way to Washington. He only has to march up to Fredericksburg halfway, but make a big deal out of it. Put it in the newspapers, And if you will, I can promise you, Lincoln will keep forty to 60,000 men out of the Army of the Potomac and put them in the defenses of Washington. And Davis never did it. So Lee, now goes up to Fredericksburg, and he begins to pull his men out of the line. They go over the Blue Ridge. They march up the Shenandoah Valley. They cross the Potomac into what's called the Cumberland Valley, and that's where the Blue Ridge across the Potomac becomes something called uh, South Mountain, and they're marching up South Mountain, and he's keeping his logistics, his line of communications in place, and he's marching his men up. The Battle of Gettysburg was really... Uh, one of the great successes of it that a lot of people don't realize is it was a it was a, a quartermaster raid. Uh, Lee in this raid he would he would not let his men plunder anything. You either gave the farmer a receipt uh, for the cows and the cattle and the pigs and the wheat and I don't know what they did with the Dutch German whiskey in Pennsylvania, yeah. but uh, you give them a you give him a receipt or you give him Confederate money. <laughs> and give the Dutch farmers a vested interest in the success of the war for the South. And uh, so that's what he would do. He wouldn't allow them to uh, uh, to plunder. Now, I'm sure there were isolated cases, but he would not do it. In fact, three men got executed uh, because they did do it. Uh, he was. Uh, he said, we, we will not make war on civilians. And, um, and of course, they would argue back, did you see what happened in Fredericksburg? Did you see what happened in the Shenandoah Valley? And he said... We will not do that. And so um, so he didn't. <clears throat> well, a lot of people don't know. There's a great book on this. I'll be glad to share it with you sometime. I'll tell you the title if you want to email me. But um, um, during the Gettysburg campaign, there was a cavalry unit called the White Raiders, uh, a, a Virginia, I think it's the 19th Virginia cavalry unit, and they... They oversaw the return, uh, the movement from Pennsylvania and Maryland. They oversaw the transportation of something in the neighborhood of 150 tons of wheat and corn uh, and, um, 100 and uh, 150,000 horses, uh, 120,000 cows, and 90,000 pigs. Uh, and uh, that fed the Army of Northern Virginia the entire next winter. Uh, that they were sent back, and so that's so that's his line of communication. This is going to come in important in just a second. That's his line of communications.
1: Great leaders
0: are in it to win it, but they're not stupid. They always have a retreat, and they always have a rally point. The second, you know, I said there were two great uh, feats of Lee, uh, and uh, one was the Battle of Chancellorsville militarily. The other was the extraction of his army after Gettysburg, back across the Potomac, fully intact. Uh, that was a remarkable feat, and he did that because he had that line of communications in place that brought him ammunition and reserves and and resources, but also was his line back uh, after the battle if they uh, if they in fact lost it. Well. Uh, so he makes his move up there, and he tells Stuart, um, in fact, I was just a couple of months ago at Brandy Station, where Stuart got embarrassed in a battle, uh, even lost his feather cap, and uh, he, got, he got embarrassed. And when Lee was moving his men up the Shenandoah Valley, he, gave, he told Stuart to go and hang on to the right flank of Ewell's 2nd Corps, as it moved up the Shenandoah Valley and across into Cumberland Valley he said you shield all the mountain passes don't let the union army come across the blue ridge or across south mountain and break our line of communications you shield it that's what you do well he said general lee look at where the army of the potomac how about if i if i slip over to the right and go around them a little bit, and then come back. He said, that's fine, that's a tactic, but your strategy is hang on to the right flank. Well, Stewart had been embarrassed, and Stewart had done something three times that made all the headlines, and he wanted headlines again. And that was when he rode all the way around the Union Army on three different occasions, so he decided to do that again, which took him out of the Gettysburg campaign until the last day, because he got cut off from Lee. And and Lee was uh, in the movie Gettysburg, you know, Martin Sheen playing Robert E. Lee. I I, I got heartburn looking at that. Uh, It's like asking Jane Fonda to play Mother Teresa. And uh, so I am, um, but he did get one scene right. And that one scene was, that one scene that he got right was the scene uh, where. When, when, uh, when Stuart shows up and he dresses him down, uh, which is a remarkable uh, depiction of what happened that day. But Stuart let him down, ego. And uh, so he, he was blind, just like a blind giant in a land. He doesn't, know, well, he doesn't know anything. In fact, it is a spy for Longstreet that comes back with the report that the Union Army is about to cross over North Mountain and break your line of communications, while Lee was up at a place called Chambersburg. And uh, and when he got that news, he said, uh, "What am I going to do? I can't lose my line of communications." And then he told him, "And by the way, Hooker's no longer the general; Meade is." And Lee knew Hooker's weak points. Uh, Meade, he said, he is not flamboyant. That he will make no mistakes on my front as Burnside or Hooker. I can't depend on him to make mistakes. He'll be cautious, but he will not make mistakes. And um, so what is he going to do to protect himself? He doesn't know where Stuart is. He now has got another general. So he said, I'm going to march my men over South Mountain at a place called Cashtown. And they come from the Chambersburg Highway across Cashtown. And right in front of him is Gettysburg, where 13 roads all come together. So it's like a wagon wheel. And he looks at it and he says, the battle will be fought here. Why? The roads and the Rock River, uh, Rock Creek uh, water system. You've got to have water to fight a war. It takes 14 gallons for a horse every day. It takes two to four gallons for a man. It takes 15 gallons to keep a cannon in operation. Uh, as they cool it down, you got to have water. Go go look at all the battles; <laughs> they're fought around bodies of water, and uh, that's why this battle was called Gettysburg for years. Uh, it was called uh, it was called the Battle of Rock Creek, uh, is what it was called. Later, got called Gettysburg uh, because I think of a couple of reasons, but. So what he says, again, he knows Meade will follow him. So he takes, uh, the second corps is already across. The second corps controls York, Pennsylvania, Carlisle, Pennsylvania, and Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. And he now brings Longstreet's corps over and A.P. Hill's corps over. He knows that if I get them on the eastern side of South Mountain, Meade won't go across. Meade will have to come up to meet me. And his plan was this. I want to string them out on a summer march, fast coming up to meet me. I want to put my men together, and then I want to hit him in detail and crush one core on the next core on the next core on the next core while he's in the line of march. Well, That's a great plan. But you don't know where they are. Because you don't have, that's, Calvary was for reconnaissance. Calvary was for information. And he has no idea where they are. So he keeps sending out couriers trying to find Stuart. And he gets his men over because he knows that Meade will hot foot it up the Emmitsburg Pike. He'll come up from Maryland. His men will be strung out. And if he can get into Gettysburg over top of him, that he can charge and just and and knock one corps back upon the other while they're on the line of march. Meade is looking at where he's going to go, and just east, about ten miles east of Gettysburg, is a place with a perfect defensive uh, location, and uh, that would be between Lee and Washington and Baltimore. And it's called it's called Pipe Creek. So he sent all of his engineers up there, and they had laid out everything. That's where he's trying to get his men and get Lee to attack him in these entrenchments. That's what he's attempting to do. And, um, and so, but what happens is, uh, what happens is the fog of war and the lack of cavalry. So if you don't have cavalry, do you reconnaissance? What are you dependent upon? Infantry. So A.P. Hill sends up one of his uh, one of his divisions that was led by uh, that was led by a, a new general by the name of Harry Heath. And Harry Heath leads his men up to Gettysburg because he heard there was clothing there and shoes there. Now there weren't because Ewell had already been through there and gotten everything. But he goes up and he is going to take Gettysburg. But as he comes across Marsh Creek, he looks up on the hills. If you can, you ever, you ever stood up on, your, on a balcony and looked at the ocean and you see the waves like this? You Where know, you, you see the waves just rolling in? Well, that's the way it looks from South Mountain. When you get up on South Mountain, you look and you see Hare's Ridge and McPherson's Ridge. You see this series of seminary ridge and cemetery. You see these, you see these ridges like waves in an ocean. Well, that is perfect defense, and a great cavalry leader by the name of Buford sees that, and he says, "We can't get better ground than this." So he goes all the way to Marsh Creek and he sets up his vedettes, and so he begins to take on Lee's, Lee's um, A.P. Hill's corps. That's coming across from Cashtown to Gettysburg, and he's on his, And as they're coming up, he begins to um, uh, to rake them with fire. Well, Lee had said, "Start no battle until I get all my men up." So Harry Heath obediently pulls his four brigades back to Cashtown. And the next day, he says to A.P. Hill, "Is there any reason I shouldn't go back?" I think those are just militia or uh, I think and uh, I think they're just militia well the head of the North Carolina brigade was a guy named Johnson Pettigrew and he said those are no militia I saw them those are regular cavalry men I think they're Buford's men and you don't get any better and uh, but A.P. Hill is sick and he's got a fever you read all of the battle. If you read all of the talks on the Battle of Gettysburg, you'll notice AP Hill is seldom mentioned. He's sick all three days. Why? Prostitis. Why? Gonorrhea. Why? At West Point, he snuck out and went to Benny Haven's uh, tavern, which was a house of ill repute, and that's what he got. Now, why am I telling you character counts oh it's just a little private sexual escapade no you get something that will eventually kill you that will eventually eventually, uh, paralyze you it takes you out of the battle you can't be in the battle somebody want to check So uh, so there is sexual immorality. How many men died because of A.P. Hill's lack of performance in the Battle of Gettysburg? And why did he were not able to perform? Uh, he, was, uh, uh, he was just uh, sidelined because of his fever, his sickness, and everything. Lee actually had to get him out of bed when he rode up to the Cashtown Hotel. Uh, because he was uh, he was just disengaged. Heath says, "Can I go back?" appeal? There's no reason why not. And he goes back. So now they come in, and then he made another mistake. They bring Harry Heath. This, he's new to combat. He's new. He's a new division commander, and he led his men in with the artillery in the front. You don't do that. And his, so his artillery uh, w- came under fire. Then they spread out. Then came two of his brigades, Archers, Tennessee's, Tennessee boys, and a nephew of Jefferson Davis, Joseph Davis, the Mississippi Brigade. They fanned out on both sides, and they charged, and eventually they drove Buford back. But as they drove him back, coming over one of those ridges, see, that's what we call defense in depth. You lose Hare's Ridge, you fall back to McPherson's Ridge. You lose McPherson Ridge, you fall back to Seminary Ridge. Uh, You lose Seminary Ridge, you fall back to Cemetery Ridge. And so they were all the way back to Seminary Ridge and were about to lose that when all of a sudden the best unit in the Army of the Potomac, with I think the best general in the Army of the Potomac, John Reynolds, comes up and he hits Archer's Tennessee Brigade and the Mississippi Brigade and rolls them up and the very first general ever captured by the South happened to Archer, uh, who was ahead of the Tennessee Brigade, was captured that day. And uh, so he rolled up two brigades and pushed them back. And he was led by the number one brigade. He not only had the number one corps, the first corps, he also had the best fighting unit in the Army of the Potomac. It was called the Iron Brigade, made up of the 19th Indiana, the 2nd, 4th, 7th Wisconsin, and the uh, 24th Michigan. And uh, so they came up, and they occupied McPherson's Ridge, and, uh, and then uh, the Pennsylvania Brigade came up and came on the right-hand side of them. And then they fanned out all the way up to Oak Hill. And so now the battle is about to take place. All of that is right out here. All of that's taking place out here on July the 1st, uh, outside before you get into Gettysburg. And um, so, uh, so Lee sends to Ewell and says, get back to Gettysburg. So Ewell pulls his men from Harrisburg, York, and Carlisle, and they march south. Now watch. When they arrive at Gettysburg, they're on the right flank of the Union Army. It's the 11th Corps. Just two months earlier, the same corps, which was Jackson's corps, had gotten on the right flank of the Union Army. 11th Corps. It was Gettysburg, it was Chancellorsville all over again. So they hit the 11th Corps and rolled it back all the way through Gettysburg. At the same time, A.P. Hill cut loose Harry Heath's division. And then came the greatest stand-up battle. You gotta go with me sometime to McPherson's Ridge. And there the best, I think, the best unit in the Army of Northern Virginia the 26th North Carolina that was recruited from the Piedmont and the P.D. River area, that unit, that regiment took on the, all the regiments of the Iron Brigade for a stand-up battle. Both sides lost 76% of manpower. The battle lasted 22 minutes on McPherson Ridge, 22 minutes. And um, 26th North Carolina lost 14 color bearers. It was an unbelievable battle, but then came the next wave. uh, Came Pender's men and the South Carolinians, and they came over top of them, and then they drove the Union army back. So the entire Union army collapsed off Seminary Ridge, all the way back to Cemetery Ridge, and they and now came the Coup de Grâce. They're confused. They're in chaos. They've been decimated. Now. Knockout blow. Do you know why Jackson got killed at Chancellorsville? He was trying to find the hole in the Union Army so at night he would charge them because he knew this is our chance. Well, now you got the sun setting on July the 1st. And Jackson's men are right in place again. But now under Richard Ewell. And Lee sends an order. And the order is take Cemetery Hill if practicable. This is Cope's Hill. This is Cemetery Hill. Jackson's men under Ewell are all out here. And he says, take Cemetery Hill if practical. Because this is where the Union Army was. The Union Army was in a fish hook. It had the first corps here. It had the... um, the 11th Corps here, and then it had men down Cemetery Ridge to a place called Little Round Top and a place called Big Round Top. So you see the fish hook? Now, what's good about that is got interior lines where you can move your men back and forth. Y'all see that? What's bad about it? It's a salient. A salient is the weakest point in a line, because these men firing in, your fire is infused. These men firing out, your fire is diffused. This is the weak point. Lee, standing on Seminary Ridge, sees it and says to Je- says to Ewell, "Take Cemetery Hill if practicable." Now, people criticize Lee for saying "if practicable." Lee shouldn't have given, I'm, I'm quoting the historians now, Lee should not have given, if it's that important, Lee should not have given a discretionary order. What you don't understand is 19th and 20th century, uh, 19th century warfare. That was not a discretionary order. That was an order with discretion. There's a difference. If he said, if practicable, take Cemetery Hill. That's a discretionary order. Take Cemetery Hill, if practicable. Lee always treated his lieutenant generals with the intelligence that he thought they would have to make the final decision on the ground. So he said, take it if practicable. Sandy Pendleton, the executive officer for Ewell, at that moment says, oh, for the spirit of Jackson, just one hour. It would have been over. I mean, first of all, when the order arrived, if Jackson was there, he would have already been on Cemetery Hill. I mean, at Fredericksburg, after they repulsed the Union Army, you know what Jackson did? He went to Lee and said, let's charge him. Jackson said, it's nighttime. He said, well. We'll be confused. We'll shoot our old men, Jackson said. I said, we can take our shirts off. I mean, Jackson's ready to play shirts and skins. It's December the 12th and six inches of snow on the ground. That's Jackson. Aggressive, combatant. He would have been up on that hill. I think Stewart would have been up on that hill if he had kept two corps and had Stewart. In my opinion, you will never know, obviously, but I think you would have. So Ewell stops, freezes. Years later, we'll confess it was he said there were six mistakes at Gettysburg, and I made five of them. And uh, he owned it and, uh, and that, was, that was the first one right there. So Lee comes Lee actually rides over, and when he, he took the measure of the man he said it's not going to happen. So then he went all the way over here. And he found A.P. Hill. And he told A.P. Hill, at that moment, this was unoccupied. This was unoccupied. The Union Army ended right here. And so he said to A.P. Hill, envelop the flank and come up and hit Cemetery Hill in behind. And Hill argued against it. And Pendleton, head of artillery, argue, argued against it. So the charge was never made. And finally, when darkness fell, it couldn't. So the day ends there. Well, Longstreet comes up. Longstreet meets Lee that that, that evening, and he says, we got him right where we want him. Now, many of you have watched the movie Gettysburg. Many of you have read the book Killer Angels. So I'm now going in direct assault upon that. Those books were written from Longstreet's memoirs after the war. We've got a word for what he did. In fact, we've got some letters. C-Y-A is what we use. And uh, it was after Lee died. You wouldn't believe all of the generals that challenged his remembrance of that moment. But here's what did happen. Longstreet came to say, Lee, we got him right where we want him. Here, let's take all of our men that are now on Seminary Ridge, circling this. Let's take They've got a three-mile line. We've got a seven-mile line. Let's take all of our men. Let's march them down here and way down here, and we can set them up between Gettysburg and Washington, and they'll have to hit us. Okay? Well, that sounds good. There's only a couple of problems. How are you going to feed 75,000 men when you just abandon your line of communication? How are you going to feed them? Well, live off the land, okay? That takes about nine hours a day. So no, you got to say no to maneuvering there. Secondly, Lee has no idea who's out there. Lee has no idea who's out there. He doesn't have Stewart to tell it. And the reality is, out here, where Longstreet wants to pick up and move, Lee says, if we pick up and move, we're vulnerable. They charge and hit us in the flank. And secondly, I don't know what's out there. Well, actually, there were four more corps marching up. And he would have run slap into them and not know where they were. So Lee says we can't do that. He said, no, the enemy is here. Here's the weak point. We're going to strike it. We're not going to strike it with a direct assault. He said, here's how we're going to do it. And he told Longstreet, oh, and uh, I'm, I'm skipping over a lot of stuff, but Longstreet just started pouting right then. Longstreet felt himself the strategic superior to Lee. Not only Jackson, Lee. And uh, so he starts pouting because Lee, doesn't, Lee, doesn't, uh, Lee won't do what he asked him to do. And so um, he, and his men are still coming up from Chambersburg and Cashtown, and they're on the march. So Lee says to him, Tomorrow morning, I want you to come out, and here's an interesting little place right here. It's called the peach orchard. Right here. And there's a road that runs like this. He said, I want you to bring your men up and I want you to bring them right here and I want you to put them perpendicular and then I want you to do an oblique charge. That is, an oblique charge is different. A flank gets on the flank and rolls it up. An oblique charge gets on the flank and makes contact with the flank and envelops it but its point is not the flank. Its point is the salient. Does that make sense to you? So he said, of course, Longstreet rightly says, well, General Lee, if I do that, they can take men around behind me. He said, we will provide a rear guard for you. So this is what I want you to do and hit the salient. And when you do, he had a general over here by the name of Robert Rhodes with 15,000 men that will come here and we'll close the gate. That's what we'll do. Does that make sense? Y'all got that? Could y'all see that? Makes sense, doesn't it? Look at that. <laughs> Look at that. Well, Longstreet pouts. So instead of the men being in place at 8 or 9 in the morning, they didn't get in place till 4.15 in the afternoon. And one of the key units was the Alabama Brigade that actually marched 28 miles that day to get in place. And I'm not going to tell you all the stuff that led behind that because I don't have time. But it, So they finally get into place. Well, by the time they get there, a guy by the name of Sickles, a, a uh, Tamiami, Tamiami politician from New York, had said, he had said, uh, he said, you know, this is higher, this is higher, the peach orchard is higher than Cemetery Ridge. I'm going to go get the high ground. So he took the Union Army out with another salient. A lot of people have criticized him. I think it was a brilliant move. I don't think he made it because he's brilliant. I just think it was a brilliant move, and, you know, a blind pig finds an acorn. And that's that's what he did. So by the time time they get up here at 4 o'clock, they can't get perpendicular here. Why? It's occupied. And Sickles' men go back to Little Round Top. They come here, and then they come back to Cemetery Ridge, and, I mean, back to Cemetery Ridge and back to Cemetery Hill, and you got this salient. So Longstreet comes to Lee, and Lee says, well, march them down further. So they go down here, and he said, then take your men, line them up, bring them and turn them in an oblique charge straight up here to Cemetery Hill. Envelop the, the, envelop the left flank But keep moving up. Don't stop to fight. Keep moving up. Do not stop. Keep moving up and then hit here and then roads. So instead of starting it here, we'll start it here and move up. Does that make sense? That's what he tells them to do. Unfortunately, they run out of uh, daylight. But, guys, that's one of the greatest studies you could ever see in, in battle. Four divisions, four divisions. Uh, mauled four corps. It, it was just phenomenal. It, it's unbelievable battle took place. there, And um, so they get up here, but then it has to go from Longstreet to Hill. And Billy Mahone would not make the charge under Longstreet's orders. He said, I won't do it till AP Hill gives the order, and AP Hill is absent. So the whole thing breaks down right here. And uh, it stops that day, but they got the peach orchard. Uh, they've um, they've got Devil's Den, and uh, but they didn't. It wasn't coordinated like Lee was asking Longstreet to do. Well, why is that? Longstreet ain't Jackson. Longstreet likes a fixed position. He doesn't like flank and oblique attacks. Don't believe in them. Doesn't like them. And he loses, not only his men don't get into the right place at the right time, he then does not coordinate them rightly. That's why if y'all go read your Gettysburg battles on the second day, July the 2nd, here's what you'll hear. The battle of the valley of death. The battle of Big Round Top. The battle of Little Round Top. The battle of the wheat field. The battle of the peach orchard. The battle of the Trostles Farm. In other words, instead of a coordinated oblique tactic, It broke down to individual battles at particular places. And therefore, it did not get accomplished what Lee was calling him to do. Now, my daddy has a word for that. Uh, Let me put it this way. You can't make an anvil into a hammer. My daddy used to put it this way. You can't make chicken salad out of chicken feathers. Actually, my daddy said that a little differently. That's that this is this is my pulpit version. Uh, you can't take make chicken salad out of chicken feathers. Longstreet ain't Jackson. It's just that simple. He's not Jackson. Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Uh, but he served as a quartermaster uh, uh, in the uh, in the army before the war. Now listen, Longstreet's got great strength, but Lee's got him in a place. It's like you know. T- that's like East Mecklenburg, Coach Hips telling me to be quarterback. No, left tackle. Grab people and find out the guy that's got the ball. That's what I did. Uh, but I can't be a quarterback. And so uh, that's, our, that's our lesson that we're going to get to um, and, um, and then open it up for questions. So, but now rapidly to what Patrick just mentioned, Pickett's Charge, third day. Now here's what all the people tell you, that Lee said, well... I tried it on the left side, July the 1st, and it faltered. I tried it on the right side, July the 2nd, and it faltered. I'll tell you what let's do. Let's just go straight across that hill and hit them straight on. Uh, They'll break in the middle. He never said that. Martin Sheen said that, but he didn't say that. That's not what Here's what he told Longstreet that night. The general plan remains the same and is unchanged. We're going to do the same thing tomorrow I tried to get you to do today. But now, tomorrow, your men are already in place somewhere on here. Here they are. They're already in place on the peach orchard. We've got 28 guns on the peach orchard aimed right up here on Cemetery Hill. We've got 150 guns on Seminary Ridge aimed right here. So now, come out. See, this is what, you look at the movie Gettysburg, and you see all those men coming across from, um, from McPherson, uh, McMillan's Woods up to Cemetery Hill. And that's, what, that's where you think, that, that was less than a third of the men. Most of the men making Pickett's Charge were on this side of the Emmitsburg Pike coming up this way. The cops of trees, which were eight feet high, I've got pictures of them. We're eight feet high. You can't see them a mile away. They were were aiming targets for these guys to come to Cemetery Hill. They were to march right through them up to Cemetery Hill. Most of the dead Confederate soldiers, when they buried them, were buried right in front of Cemetery Hill, not down here at the Stone Wall. Most of them were buried right there, where McDonald's is today. which I despise that. Most of them were buried right there. That was the, in fact, if you go to Gettysburg, go over here to Seminary Ridge, and you'll see the jumping off part of the 26th North Carolina Pettigrew's Brigade, and the best statue there is the North Carolina statue. The same guy that did Mount Rushmore did that statue. And it's a great statue. It really is you got five men, and you got one on the ground urging the guy standing on to the target. Go look at the man's finger. He's pointing, not over here at the copse of trees. He's pointing at Cemetery Hill. That's where they were supposed to get. So over here was Trimble's men that were to get to Cemetery Hill, and Pickett's men came out oblique and they came up Emmitsburg Pike and they were to hit there and then Rhodes 15,000 were to come here and Ewell's men came up and took Cemetery Hill that day and were holding it, waiting for everybody. Now who finally showed up on July the 3rd? Stuart. And he fights a cavalry battle over here. Why? Because Lee sent Stuart Around over here, and he said, "When my men break through Cemetery Hill, they're gonna they're gonna flee down Baltimore Pike. And when they do, I want you to hit them in the flank, over here. And that's why he sent Stewart over there to do that. But it was another oblique. It was not a head-on assault. Harry, how did so many guys get pushed into that stone wall? Well, here's what happened: as they came up here. As they, as they as they kicked off on July the 3rd uh, Perry's Floridians and Wright's Georgians were supposed to go straight out and there were cannon right here 38 guns and they were to take those guys on so they wouldn't be able to fire into the flank of Kemper's of Kemper's Brigade that was coming up but Longstreet didn't have them in place and so the charge started without them And by the time they got into place, the charge was almost over. So 38 guns went into Kemper's flank. Well, when you start getting fire in your flank, what are you going to do? You're going to get this thing over as quick as you can. And so they then began to move, they began to move here into the stone wall instead of staying on course for Cemetery Hill. Then over here, Trimble's men are coming across. And the eighth Ohio came out at McDonald's, and they got perpendicular, and they fired into Brockenburg's Virginians and Davis's Mississippians and Pettigrew's North Carolinians, and they pushed them in this way. So the flanking fire pushed everybody in like a funnel, into the stone wall. But the reality was, this is what they were aiming at right here. okay Lee did not do a direct assault. Lee was doing, the plan remains unchanged. The oblique attack, and when you get there, Rhodes is coming across, but they never got there. The other problem that happened is Pendleton, out of a fear of the, of the northern artillery, which was superior to the southern artillery, took his howitzers and moved them back and the ammunition. So when the charge took off, what would normally happen is the howitzers would go with the charging troops to blow out the fences and to create the holes and to lob over them uh, where they're going to hit. But they, those 12 howitzers were not there and not enough artillery to maintain the cannonade because Pendleton had removed it and nobody knew it. When Longstreet heard that, he said, Call the charge off. And, um, and his adjutant said, we can't do that. It's already going. It, 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 it's, it's already going. So they didn't call it off. All right, so guys, that's a big, that's a lot of stuff I just dumped on you. But uh, it's not left, right, direct assault. When he says the plan remains unchanged, what does that tell you? He had a plan. It wasn't serendipity. Well, what am I going to do today? He had a plan, and it was consistent with every other battle he fought. And that was Rhodes' men, fix them. I'm bringing up Longstreet's men and the oblique attack. The previous day, I'm bringing up Ewell's men on the oblique attack. Here's your lessons, and then uh, fire away questions or comments, whatever you want to do. Number one is this. Uh, if you're a leader, you got to make sure everybody understands your mission. And they got to understand the tra- strategy. Number two, on your team of leaders, they got to believe in the mission, they got to believe in the strategy, and they got to believe in the leader. Longstreet thought he ought to be the leader. Eighteen generals asked Lee to discipline Longstreet after that battle. That was a big weakness of Lee. He couldn't do it. I'll tell you what Lee did do. If you failed, you all of a sudden found yourself in another theater of the war. So D.H. Hill, after he failed, ends up head of the Department of North Carolina. Pierre Borgard ends up the head of the Department of South Carolina. When they got back to Richmond after the Battle of Gettysburg, anybody know what happened to Longstreet? he and two of his divisions were sent to the Army of the West and he fought at the Battle of Chickamauga. Then he went up and lost, of all people, Burnside and Knoxville. Then in 1864, he came back and joined uh, Lee's army again. Somewhat of a different person at that time. I think he had learned some lessons. He had been chastised. But uh, Lee should have disciplined him. I think his pouting... Should have had consequences. Even his adjutant Walter Taylor, I mean, even his adjutant Maxie Sorel, um, uh, interesting guy from Savannah, uh, said the same thing. So, when you're leading, you got to know your mission. You got to be unalterably committed to it. Secondly, you got to build an infrastructure that's consistent with your strategy. It failed on the second day. Almost succeeded anyway. But it failed in the handoff from Longstreet to Hill. With two corps, there wouldn't have been a handoff. And Lee made another big mistake. He increased, the, he increased the scope of his command 33% by adding a third corps. He did not increase his staff. He still tried to maintain the same staff. He needed to have increased his staff for the purpose of communication. Finally, he didn't rightly replace Jackson. Uh, Longstreet's not Jackson. Ewell's not Jackson. Jackson was an executive. He was an interesting man. He could take an army and fight in the Valley, independent command. He could come over and unite with Longstreet in the Army of Northern Virginia, and he could be an executive officer. Wouldn't you love to have been sitting in that pine thicket on that night, when Lee and Jackson are putting together the Chancellorsville strategy, that was just absolutely. That must have been something just to listen to that conversation. And I love it. Lee says, "He says, General Jackson, how are we going to get it?" He would never call the Union Army enemies. He would say, "How are we going to get at those people?" And uh, Jackson said, "Well, it's in the air, General Lee. I think you're right. Let's get let's get on the flight." And he said, uh, he said, fine. He, he loved to draw Jackson. in. And he said, how many men do you propose? Jackson said, my whole corps. He said, oh, that'll leave me with 14,000 men all day. And Jackson just looked at him. Then Lee looked back at him and said, do it. Amazing tandem that was at work on that day. So you got to have the right people in the right positions. You got to build your infrastructure to accomplish your mission and the strategies that you use to accomplish the mission. And that's where Lee's faults were. He um, he did not have an executive officer. Longstreet was not Jackson. Ewell was not Jackson, and he had rearranged the army so it was not consistent with his strategy and what needed to happen. I'll just finish it by showing you this. Any of y'all ever read uh, in eighteen? Have any y'all ever read the stories at the Battle of the Wilderness, the Battle of Spotsylvania, the Battle of Mine Run, where there were these unbelievable moments where the Confederate soldiers told General Lee, Lee to the rear. Lee to the rear. General Lee, we will take them if you will go to the rear. And uh, you never heard Lee to the rear in 1862, 1863. Lee was where he was supposed to be. Why do you hear it in 1864? Lee became his own executive officer. He was up where Jackson would have been. That's why you hear it in 1864. He was never able to replace him. And of course, in 1864, Stewart got killed. and That option was gone as well. So let me stop. Y'all are amazing to have endured all of that. Uh, I am proud of you. Your preacher must go for about 50 or 55 minutes. Most of this is just a repeat of what we did last week. Any questions or comments or? uh, Why did he allow him to be killed? Well, he wasn't there. I mean, Lee was, they were, they were, yeah, they were separated. So Jackson was killed by friendly fire. See, Jackson, uh, I was just there not long ago with a guy that I'm helping author a book on this stuff. And, um and he went down this thing called the Mountain Road that was parallel to the Orange Turnpike, and he was trying to find a way to get behind the Union Army so they couldn't get back across the river. And then he would take his men there, and it was about 9 o'clock at night. So the 18th North Carolina um, had just repelled a counterattack by the 9th uh, New Jersey cavalry. And you hear Jackson coming back with about 16 of his officers, staff, reconnaissance, engineers. And they hear the horses. And the 18th North Carolina thought it was another counterattack. So a major, Dave Barry, said, fire men. And they fired the first volley. It missed everybody. And then came A.P. Hill and others that said, don't fire. We're your own men. Barry, Major Barry said, that's a lie, man. Pour it into him. And the next one, Jackson was hit three places. He was hit in his forearm, severed his artery in his left shoulder, and uh, his right hand, a ball stuck. Thinest part of your body, it stuck right there. And so he had three bullets, and they were all round shot, which meant they were Confederate. It was friendly fire. And uh, so... Um, that's how he died. Yes, sir. A comment a question. The comment is Lincoln followed your advice and he sent Burnside uh, the Lakota Sioux Uprising in Minnesota, uh, which goes to show uh, some leaders do better in other theaters. Yeah, you know, some th- but here's what you've got to be willing uh, you've got to be willing not just to change their seat on the bus, but go put them on another bus. Uh, I can take you right there where his leg was shot off. And to, and he was, now he's a courageous man. He was just a womanizer, a gambler, uh, a crook, uh, everything else. I mean, hey, if you go there, there is a memorial statue to Sickles. There's a memorial statue, but it's not finished. It's because he embezzled $28,000 from the fund. Uh, And so nobody will finish it just to remind them. Then he gets his leg cut off, he gets it embalmed, and you can visit it at the New York City Museum. Uh, he would actually have a press conference at his leg once a year uh, when he went back to run for office. But what you're saying, is a courageous man. He knew his men were uh, Barksdale, Mississippians, were killing him. And, but so he, they got him up on a stretcher, and he lit a cigar, and he held it up said, men, fight on. And they took him off the field. So Yes, sir? Uh, can you talk a little bit about how they communicated uh, in these various settings? I mean, with messengers or flags or trumpets how they do it. So here's what's interesting. The guy that was the head of the artillery at Fredericksburg and at Gettysburg is a guy from Washington, Georgia. His name is uh, Edward Porter Alexander. He was a 28-year-old colonel, West Point grad. Um, He has a lot of distinctions. He is the very first United States aviator. The very first balloon for reconnaissance and messaging was a southern balloon, and it was the last one. Because they couldn't they didn't get have the right kind of gas uh and they didn't have access to it so they couldn't it wasn't stable and the first balloon was made out of women's petticoats and it didn't last long so uh but there was a great aviator in the northern side named Thaddeus Lowe, and uh he would t- take the balloon up and uh, the it it was good at the beginning, but once the smoke of battle and the black powder uh smoke began to The balloon was not that useful. The number one communication was cavalry, and number two were couriers. So each general would have 12 couriers, and he would write an order to another general, and it would be written in triplicate because three men would carry the same order, which is, uh, by the way, why Antietam was Such a bad thing because one of those orders was found by McClellan and they stole a march, uh, it was wrapped in a thing of cigars. But, um, so they would do that. If you know the number one way of communication are couriers, and you're in a battle and you see some guy riding like crazy on a horse, you figure what? Hey, shoot him, the message won't get there. So that's why they would send three couriers and, um. I'm trying to write a book on all this, and um, uh, and it's going to be built around a courier, and uh, so, um, uh, so that's the second way, and then thirdly is semaphore, flags. Guess who invented semaphore? Edward Porter Alexander. He invented semaphore, and of course now it's it navigated mostly to naval vessels, but uh, they still use it in, uh, in battle. Yeah. Yes. yes, ma'am. Were, were encrypted messages used yes, at ma'am. That time? Yes, ma'am. So why would they put their messages? Well, you're in a battle, you don't have a lot of time for encryption and, uh, and then interpretation and then who's got what. So they would just scribble it paper, pencil. Uh, Jackson gets his men on the flank at 415 15 at Chancellorsville. He says, uh, um, he says, he says the leave in place, uh, uh, and that uh, we are uh, advancing. He was texting. He was texting. Yeah, that's 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 their version of texting. Then he made a. Uh, then he made a. Uh, uh, he, he is the guy, of course. He made the famous statement as he looked across at Chancellorsville. All of his general officers, he had trained. Him, and he said, the Institute will be heard from today. So But I mean, <laughs> who's counting? I don't think all the were. the That's the famous Southern author, uh, Faulkner, William Faulkner, who starts off at. It's 3.15, July the 3rd. Every Southern boy says, maybe today. Well, all of that occurred. But they don't give the two-thirds of, of the men making that charge are on the right-hand side. And it wasn't Pickett's charge. There were three generals leading it. Pettigrew, um, Pettigrew led it. Uh, Pettigrew's uh, division... Um, Trimble's Division, and Pickett's Division. <laughs> but Virginia writes most of the history books in the South. And so it becomes Pickett's Charge. Actually, the correct nomenclature should be Longstreet's assault. And these generals were all reporting to him. Huh? Yes. Yeah. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. was pushing them; his group pushing them, but they stopped. No, no, not the first day. Longstreet's not up yet. Was this before? On July the first, it's AP Hill's men and Ewell's men. Ewell's men are coming down from the. Well, it was about seven fifteen, seven thirty. That's the first day. Yeah. And wouldn't have been for darkness, it might have been a whole different situation. Well, if you'd had somebody other than Ewell there. That's really, I mean, it wasn't so dark he couldn't have done that. So so let me show you something else. On the third day, Ewell takes Cemetery Hill, and he's waiting for Longstreet and Pickett. And he can't hear everything. So all of a sudden, men are coming over, and he says to his men, hold your fire, it's Longstreet. He's been successful. Actually, it was the 1st and 11th Corps coming back from having repulsed the charge, and they drove Ewell off of East Cemetery Hill. But he was listening for Longstreet to come through. Yes, sir. denial what were lee's principal character deficiencies with fear and trepidation i'll give you the only one that i see um now i think in terms of the slavery issue uh, he was way ahead of his time actually and doesn't get credit for it you know he frees his slaves in 1857 grant frees his in 18 that's right the, the slaves he inherited um, Grant freed the slaves he inherited from his wife in 1867. Um, Lee was actually threatened with uh, prison because he would not free them without educating them, and it was against the law to educate them in the state of Virginia. Um, but uh, so, but I do believe Lee was guilty of what what would have been called back then paternalistic uh, prejudice. I think he was guilty of that. And I wish he was such a reserved man. Man, I think he was also guilty of not taking some leadership in the public square like you're going to learn tomorrow from Peter Lilbeck. Uh, he, he could, I think, him and their five Presbyterian preachers, if they had dealt with, with slavery, not as indentured servitude, but as chattel slavery, man-stealing, if they had dealt with it rightly, I don't think I think you'd save seven hundred thousand lives. But, but, but the one character flaw that Lee had, and I think he had it because of his embarrassment of his father, is uh, he he was he he was the master of denial. He hated personal conflict. He avoided it at all costs. I think that's why he didn't discipline uh, Longstreet. He didn't and others. He would just send them off somewhere, put them on somebody else. That's right. Yeah, I love the time the uh, I love the time the boy shows up to talk. He, he would interview all the students uh, every semester. He and he'd know their grades and everything, knows their name. So one of them came into his office, and he's got a he's got a plug of tobacco chewing it. He says, what is that you've got? And uh, he said, well, I'm not going to tell you you can't chew it back. If you're not going to chew it in front of me. It's disrespectful. Go spit it out. So the boy comes back, and he comes back in. All he had done is flipped it to the other side. <laughs> Lee took out this card, and he wrote something on it. He said, the bulletin board was right outside his office. He said, would you go uh, put this out there? And he went and put the note card. It was his dismissal. <laughs> 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 he just sent him on home. I don't. I think the. Um, may I recommend to you a um, wonderful book by a guy by the name of William Davis. It's called the uh, Confederacy, uh, the the Confederate the Confederacy, 1832 to, uh, eighteen thirty two to eighteen eighteen sixty five. That's the name of the book. Uh, and um, his premise, and I think he's right. I, actually, I don't think he goes far enough. His premise is that. Um, beginning with the tariff imposition in 1830 uh, and Andrew Jackson's enforcement of it. Uh, that was, And then joined to that was the industrialist who funded the Nat Turner Rebellion and all of the horrific murders that took place. He says that's when it became inevitable, uh, the regional conflict. And um, the only way it could have gotten rid, if it, if you had gotten rid of the institution of slavery, you might have avoided it. But um, but the uh, the house divided wasn't going to stand. And uh, so, um, in fact, if you'll go look, um, Tennessee Military Academy, VMI, uh, Carolina Military Academy in Charlotte, uh, the Georgia Military Institute, Texas Military Institute. You go look at all the southern states, all of those West Point-style colleges began from 1830 to 1838. That's when they all began. That's why Lee was opposed to military education, uh, except for the three-service academies. He felt that made it inevitable, and given the the warring spirit of the Scots-Irish that settled the South. You You ever heard of Braveheart? Okay, I think, let me get him. I think he was first. I just want to know if you copyrighted that unique uh, diagram. No, but these girls were taking pictures of it. given anything that Cyrus McCormick hadn't moved from Virginia to Chicago. Uh, if, he, if the, the thing that exacerbated it was the cotton gin, but the thing that would have eliminated it was the reapers uh, that uh, McCormick was making. McCormick was actually born in Rockbridge County in Lexington, Virginia. It's just right down the road. But then, for the purpose of manufacturing and business, he moved to Chicago. But by the way, after the war, he became a major supporter of Washington and Lee. And so did Augustus Peabody. Um, In fact, there's a picture of Peabody in Lee's office. Any other questions? Because you felt that Stuart could have been a permanent replacement. He was the temporary replacement. And I don't know why Lee didn't look and see what Stuart did on that day when he took over Jackson's command and brought the battle home at Chancellorsville. Now, but then again, I mean, it's like when I moved to Birmingham the superintendent of the Briarwood Christian School said, you know, I know you like an executive pastor. Uh, I'll be glad to serve as an executive pastor, and maybe we'll get somebody else to do the school. I said, Earl, you are the number one superintendent in the United States of America of Christian schools, and I'm going to engender a lot of confidence in this church if I move you from that to do something you've never done before in your life. And uh, so... Uh, I can see where he's got the greatest cavalry commanders that's ever lived. I mean, only one close was his daddy, Light Horse Harry Lee, and uh, that's the only one. That, of course, Lee grew up without his daddy. Uh, his daddy was uh, in debtor's prison twice. He's the only man I know to write two bad checks to George Washington, and uh, <laughs> so to escape debtor's prison, he went into the into the islands and uh, died at Cumberland Island. Up, you know, but he left the family in um, in Alexandria. So in your opinion, do you think Stuart would have I do. I think that I think that was his only option, and I think it was a great option. And I think Stewart had proved it on that day. Uh, he might have had to have convinced, but if Lee had asked Stewart to step in and here's the other thing. Who did Stuart have? Wade Hampton, Fitz Lee, and Rooney Lee. He had three great generals that could have taken his place. There was nobody to take Jackson's place except for possibly Stewart.